1: Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max
2: Linsky. Howdy. Hey, you guys. Hey, Aaron. Who'd you talk to this week? I talked to
1: Rehan Salam. Uh, Rehan is the new executive editor of National Review. I think this is our first um, conservative politics. Writer. You've been trying to get
2: you've been trying mm-hmm. to get a conservative writer on this show. I have because <laughs> I believe this is, a, this is episode 118, and you have uh, you have been trying for a long time. I'm proud. I believe of you that you in did
1: being uh, fair and balanced, but uh, actually, Rayhan is like one of the most charming people I have ever talked to in any capacity in my life. Um, I would say politics is actually n- not the only thing we talked about. He also does a column for Slate. Um, he was the host of Vice's podcast, which I think is no longer a podcast and is now a video show called hmm. Vice Meets, but he still hosts it. Um, he's a great interviewer; definitely better at interviewing than any of us. <laughs> um, so I, I really recommend this. Well, episode. it seemed
2: like he uh, he got you too. You've seen much more conservative lately.
1: I did. I, I felt. I felt like I wanted. I just wanted to please him after the episode. <laughs> Do we have
2: any sponsors this week? <laughs> we do. We do. We have uh, several sponsors. The first is Bonobos. If you want to please people who are looking at you, you should get some clothes from Bonobos. It's B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com. com. Uh, if you go there and use the code longform at checkout, you'll get 20% off, and it's free delivery. Check it out. Bonobos.
1: We are also sponsored this week um, by one of my favorite games, Cards Against Humanity, but we're actually not sponsored by the game. We're sponsored by... Cards Against Humanity's 10 Days or Whatever of Kwanzaa. So here's how it works. You give Cards Against Humanity 15 bucks, they send you 10 mystery gifts for the 10 days or whatever of Kwanzaa. Space is limited to the first 250,000 people who sign up at HolidayBullshit.com. I don't think I need to say anything else about that. You're just going to go to (laughs) HolidayBullshit.com right now.
2: Speaking of sending things out, if you had, let's say... A new political philosophy, like Aaron, you'd become much more conservative, you had a lot of ideas that you wanted to spread to your friends, strangers, set up an email newsletter.
1: How would I do that?
2: The best way to do it, in my opinion, and I learned this by watching you, is a tiny letter from the good people at MailChimp. They're uh, the best place to generate a powerful email newsletter to share with the world. All right, here we go. Here's Aaron with Rehan Salam.
1: Welcome, Raihan Salam.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: So you are newly the executive editor of National Review. That is H- correct. How, how how newly? This is a couple last. How couple?
3: newly? Like literally, uh, I'm in my first week. This is
1: your first week. Yes. So you have been doing this job um, for a brief enough period that i I think you will not be offended by this question, where a, maybe a more senior person might. What does an executive editor do?
3: That is a very good question, and I think that it's still... You know, I think that you have that title at a bunch of different places, and it means different things at different places. Yeah. But Rich Lowry has been our editor for a very long time. He's our editor-in-chief. He oversees both the magazine and the website. Yeah. The website is a big, sprawling beast, and I think that just keeping tabs on it is quite an enterprise in itself. So I think that there was a desire to see to it that there's someone at the print magazine Mm. who is really focused on the longer articles we put out. We have these three-column and two-column articles in the middle of the book. And just to be sure that we're commissioning thoughtfully, that we're uh, thinking ahead, uh, and that we are also ideally drawing on a wider range of contributors. And I think that, you know, my reputation at NR and with friends has always been as someone who is just very curious about this, always extremely eager to find uh, people, cultivate people in this way, and also to hopefully provoke, to stimulate discussion, to serve the interests of the folks who are part of our core constituency, but then to also connect with people who are outside of that. I want to come back to certain issues about Sort of the differences
1: between the publishing spectrum on the conservative and more progressive end, but when you when you go look for a young writer, wh- where are the hot spots that are are generating uh, young writers that you would be looking for for National Review?
3: The fundamental problem with people in the kind of editorial publishing world, and this is true in ideological media, it's true more broadly as well, is that we uh, find the people who are. In our networks or on the fringes of our networks, we tend to identify with people who are broadly similar to us who share our sensibilities. And I think that's dangerous. I also think that it's a little bit about the kind of person who's drawn to making themselves visible to you. And I always think of our work as this funny thing because, you know anyone can write. Not everyone can write well, necessarily, but you know, there are a lot of people who can do it. So who thinks they can? Who thinks they have something worth saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is saying that in a place that you know, will be visible to me or to anyone else? Um, and that's kind of the problem I'm always trying to solve. Uh, that being that you know, I just see these people who are like in my field of vision because they're kind of self-appointed. Right. They've appointed themselves as people who ought to be heard. And I just feel like, wow, there are a lot of people out there I want to hear and I think there are other people who want to hear too but who aren't really easy to find right um, well I
1: think that that there are um, certain pockets where there's kind of a farm league system where even someone who doesn't set out to write politically maybe does a few pieces for the all and someone catches wind of it and you know boom they're writing for slate and someone likes them a slate and and you're working for the New Republic yeah a few years later What I've seen, and I may be ignorant of this, is that uh, a magazine like National Review doesn't necessarily have as deep a farm system, that there isn't quite as much of a um, broad, lowly paid base to choose people from.
3: That's very astute. So basically, the the larger issue is that in our world, I'd say the boundaries between ideological media and non ideological media are sharper and more distinct than they are with folks who are on the left end of ideological media. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many people I know well who started out in ideological media on the left, who then made their way to um, you know leading. I hate the term mainstream media, but uh, you know, kind of leading prominent yeah. media brands, sure. uh, entrenched let's media, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, that that's a kind of very classic move. And it's a and there certainly are some people who are in the kind of right of center universe who've done that, too. But it's rare. And some of that reflects the sensibilities of the people in our world. Um, And some of that's just circumstance. Like, again, like who is in your network? Who sees what? So, yeah. Where do those people come from? Well, well, I'll tell you a bit about myself.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, how, do you, um, f- how would I find you if I were looking
3: for so you? So when I was when I was an undergrad, I was an avid reader of Andrew Sullivan. I was an avid reader of Andrew Sullivan because when I was in high school, I yeah. read The New Republic kind of through a random set of circumstances. It was like in my high school library, and I started subscribing to it, and I just got into it. And uh, so I would just email him from time to time when I was an undergrad after he'd started blogging, mm-hmm. and he was very encouraging and... When I applied for an internship in the New Republic, you know, I did that through a separate process, but then he was someone I immediately bonded with. And that was really powerful, partly just, you know, the sense of legitimacy. I mean, I didn't think I was going to be a writer. That was not um, in the cards for me. That seemed just not like a a realistic prospect from someone who came from, you know— standard middle class kind of background. So, you know, just to see how this works. I mean, that was a very big deal for me. But it started out just because I was a curious reader who was just engaging with this person. And I found a lot of people that way. Yeah. Um, You know, people who reach out to you, some of whom wind up being really stimulating to talk to. And then, you know, you're kind of at some point you're turning the conversation like, hey, I really appreciate that you're giving me these ideas. But you realize that you actually have a lot to say. Yeah. And that you know, if this is something you want to do, you ought to do it. Um, It's also, you know, even going to college campuses, finding people who don't necessarily agree with me on X, Y, or Z, but just where it's like, wow, you have an interesting voice. You come from an interesting and distinctive kind of place. Now, again, the tragedy there is just these are college campuses, right? I mean, you know, this is still a fairly narrow slice of the world, but that's really what I get excited about. I really get excited about certainly finding people who think they have a lot to say and are kind of quite um, happy and comfortable with that. But then sometimes finding people who um, just have a deep subject expertise or just are compelling storytellers in some other domain and kind of trying to get them excited about some of the questions that I and we're excited about. Before we
1: started, you and I were having a discussion about whether or not this was a resurgence of the golden age of the columnist. And certainly what you're describing in terms of People with ideas and someone like Sullivan and I would say your writing um, is in the tradition of, of, of a Sullivan when you're seeking out for national review that sort of that 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 meat of the book stuff that's longer there's a lot of loud voices on the internet how do you distill that into something that's a feature I mean how, like when I when I go on the na- when I when I go on national review site it's a lot of columnists. That it's very do- dominated by sort of opinion blogging. What do you look for in, in a
3: future article? So this relates to the identity of a print magazine. In an era in which the web is front-facing, in which the web is how people come to understand us, uh, you know, for example, we call our website National Review Online, and even that's a question internally. Like, you know, yeah. it's National Review. I mean, right. you know, just the idea of it as being this kind of separate thing, um, and and that raises the stakes. So, you know, so then, what is the role of the print magazine? So, as with many ideological media outlets, you know, our print audience is different from our online audience. It tends to be somewhat older. Tends to be very connected to the Traditions of the magazine, and I think that that's something that merits respect and attention. I also think, however, that um, you know, in a way, the the print magazine can have a better relationship to the web product in that it can be about a sensibility. You know, you're attached to this brand, which is why you're subscribing, and so you know, we're giving you a, a sense of what to think, what to care about. And so it's stuff that's, you know, less newsy, but feels consequential, feels solid. So for me, a lot of that's been, you know, in the past, just thinking about policy questions, how do we reframe certain policy debates? But in this new role, what I'm hoping is that we can become a place for a lot of rich, Intra-conservative debate, not just on policy questions, but also on some larger questions, too. I mean, my real hope is that, you know, we're both going to say things that are going to resonate with our audience, but also some things that are going to um, challenge that audience, and also hopefully spur some dissension, you know, kind of richer conversation kind of within our community. But then also, you know, Kevin Williamson, one of our writers, who's one of the favorites of our readers, uh, he wrote a really wonderful story about Appalachia a little while ago. Yeah, that was on long form. It was awesome. And what was wonderful about that is just uh, that was something that I think it was introducing some of our readers to a slice of the country that they're not necessarily familiar with. But it was also something that was connecting to people who are not normally coming to National Review, uh, to the print magazine. And that's exciting to me. I definitely want to find that kind of storytelling. I want to do things that are challenging. And so, you know, as to kind of what constitutes a future, I mean, because I came of age with that Andrew Sullivan New Republic that is not something that we've always done, but like the takedown or just the thing that's like, you know, kind of taking on a larger idea that's a little diffuse and giving it some definition. That's one thing that we can do uh, that is sharper and it's going to be witty. But then also things that are reported and bringing something new to our readers. So again, you know, we're not we're not in the business of breaking stories at the print magazine. Hopefully that's something we'll be doing with our website. But just the idea that you know, we're opening people up to some of the intricacies, um, some of the kind of inside details, like how does the sausage get made? Telling compelling stories about that as well, I think would be very exciting.
1: Well, I think it's interesting. I I really want to avoid like saying like the other side of ideological media does this. How come you don't do that? Or like, why do you do this? But that said, the New Republic will run, uh, and, and it's not just the, not just the New Republic. Someone will run an investigation of the Koch brothers, or um, an environmental issue that is sort of loosely aligned with a certain progressive uh, ideological uh, value, but is also just wow, this is a great story. You know, we we dug up a great story, and I and I'm interested in. Whether you see the same opportunities sort of going the other direction looking at, you know, major Democratic donors or policy issues like I want them to be balanced so that in my job as sort of a curator of the Internet, I'm like, I want to be like column A, column B. Everyone gets a fair shot. And I often find that conservative journalism doesn't counterweight that kind of a piece. And I'm always curious why
3: that is a very interesting question. And I do think that that is changing. So, for example, if you look at the Washington Free Beacon, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a website that does very aggressive reporting. Uh, They do a lot of work on donors. Uh, They've done Mm -hmm. a ton of work on uh, Tom Steyer, a very prominent uh, donor to democratic and environmental causes. I think that, you know, there's a lot of value to that. And I think that there's more of this culture of uh, aggressive investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another issue is just resources. Uh, So there's a woman, Helen Andrews, um, who used to go by the name Helen Riddlemeyer, she used to work at NR for a while. And she just has a great eye. She's not my biggest fan, which is kind of why I like her, actually. <laughs> um, she's someone who really calls bullshit on people. Yeah. And I remember she wrote something about conservative media a while ago. And again, I'm very new to this role, but yeah. I think that it it kind of raised some really solid points. I mean. We face resource constraints, and so to some degree, and I think this is true of ideological media more broadly. But you know, this is certainly true of yeah. us. A lot of the people who write for us are people who are just delighted to be writing for us. Uh, they're people who are in the think tank world, academics, uh, people who are activists. You know, people who we think have really distinctive, exciting voices. But they are not people. You know, for whom it's. Viable or possible for them to be- spend, you know, six months chasing a story, and also right. we don't, uh, we haven't always had the resources to be able to make those stories right. a kind of going proposition. I mean, you know, as in the kind of left of center world, I mean, there are various fellowships, there are things that are kind of making this more pos- possible, and one hopes to do a somewhat better job of that. But again, it's also like, it's the permeability. It's kind of like, what do you think your role is? And I think that to some degree, folks on my side of the street. I actually joke about this with some of my writers, some of the people that I'm, I'm reaching out to now, like, hey, just don't do what I do. Like, you know, what I did is I wrote manifestos. Let me tell you what I think about X. Right. And in a way, like, that's cool. I obviously do it all the time. And I think that, you know, there's a place for it. But yeah, I do think that simply diagnosis. Yeah, we have certain values. We have principles. We have gut instincts that we share or that, you know, we debate at the edges. But then there's also just the diagnosis question, like what actually is going on? what's wrong out there? Uh, and actually, are we right about that? Like, one thing I've been intrigued by is that I think many conservatives have this attitude that, well, America is fundamentally a conservative country. And, you know, gosh, that's why it's such an outrage when things are going this direction or whatever else. And, you know, one thing I'm, I'm just intrigued by is, you know, what if that's not the case? Peter Beinart wrote a piece for a National Journal a few months ago that got a little bit of attention about how America is a more secular society. It's more, it's less exceptional in some respects. And to some degree, That could be an exciting pose for us. I mean, or certainly, you know, I can see that being a font for a certain kind of argument. That actually, no, the country isn't actually where we are, and we want to get the country to where we are. And there's a kind of vitality to that kind of argument where you just kind of don't take for granted some of these things that a lot of us do. So I'm excited about that, and that can't always be done um, through. Let me, you know, tell you what I think, like the classic Raihan style opinion sort of thing. He's doing a beard stroking, stroking my my fake beard. Instead, just, yeah, let's do that diagnosis and let's persuade people by telling compelling stories. Hey, it's your host, Aaron Lammer,
1: with a quick word from our sponsor, Bonobos. Uh, Winter is coming. Perhaps you want to update your wardrobe, but you don't want the hassle of shopping for it. Uh, That's the situation I was in, and I was very excited to discover Bonobos. They're at bonobos.com. They make everything from shirts to hats to denim, outerwear. Pretty much anything you could want. So I encourage you to go to bonobos.com, and when you're checking out, put in offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 20% off your first order. Shipping's always free both ways, and you can return anything if you don't love it, no questions asked. It's extremely easy. So go to bonobos.com, that's B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com, because you deserve to look your best, and these guys will help you with that. Here I am back with Rehan Salam. You host a uh, – it's labeled a podcast – or maybe it was was once labeled a podcast. I think it's been rebranded now. It was originally The Vice Podcast. And um, one of my favorite I – r- I really enjoy the show. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed – you had um, Rick MacArthur, who's the um, publisher of Harper's. You disagreed with some of his views, but, but uh, Mac- Rick MacArthur is uh, probably of – uh, magazine publishers, uh, the most tilted against the, the internet of, of anyone who's got a, a Deep major mouth, mouthpiece right now. And I was very impressed when I was watching you interview him that I got the impression that you disagreed with his views without you ever disagreeing with him. Like you have a a, a real um, skill at being a neutral interviewer yet still not sort of getting um, bowled over. How? how and, and I'm guessing that this somewhat comes down to you're someone who's frequently in the presence of people whose views differ strongly from your own like when I met you uh, we were at a picnic table Uh, I fairly confident on the political views of the other people at the table on you and I think that's an unusual experience in America right now to be so comfortable among people who is that something that you have worked on have cultivated
3: I know that's a
0: loaded question. No, no, no. no.
3: I love interviewing people. And I think that part of what draws me to this line of work is I care about politics. I think of myself as having an activist bent. I care about the country. I care about the country's future. And so it matters to me to be with people who are like-minded and to be working together, feeling like we're working together in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So that stuff is very, very important to me. But I also think the thing that has always drawn me to being a reader is I'm incredibly curious about other people. I'm curious about what they think of as the constraints operating on their lives. Why do they think what they think? Um, And I think that, you know, with the interview series, it's really important to me just to draw out what they think um, and to, you know, make them feel safe in that. And, you know, there are times when I kind of will push back, but usually the pushback is just to gain some more clarity into exactly how they put the pieces together, but like in a way, if I weren't doing this job, I'd want to be a high school guidance counselor because I'm <laughs> obsessed with the idea that there are people who think that there are constraints operating on their lives. A lot of these constraints are real. Some people don't see the constraints, you know, or, or whatever else. But it's just, but some of these constraints, they're plastic. You know, to some degree, it depends on how we think of ourselves um, in relation to other people, and what we can do. And I just kind of feel like, wow, what a powerful thing. What a difficult, hard and miserable job in some ways. But just to feel like you can be the person who can kind of reframe how people think about stuff. Some people think of opinion journalism uh, as about persuasion. And I actually don't think that's the case, because I think that it can be at the edge. But I think it's very hard to persuade people because people believe at at our age. I mean, you and I are both ancient. We're practically dead. Yes. Um, But, you know, uh, we believe things because we're part we're affiliated with people. For me to tell you that you're wrong about this like deep foundational thing is for me to tell you that your mom is wrong. You know, your whole family is wrong. Where you grew up, that whole thing is wrong. I mean, I'm not going to persuade you of that. What I can persuade you of, and this is in terms of my engagement with things outside of my world, I can persuade you that actually some people who disagree with you are actually coming from the exact same kind of place. They're actually pretty thoughtful. Maybe you'll think, well, you're entrenched in this other thing, and I'm not. I'm actually deeply thoughtful. Or or maybe just to make you think twice about that. And that's one thing that kind of loosens the thought process a little bit. And again, I don't think I'm going to persuade people that way, but I can challenge them and get them to be a little clearer about exactly what it is they think and I think there's a lot of value to that so you know in my writing in my own columns and what have you I mean I'm very cognizant of the fact that you're doing different jobs for different people I'm doing one job there's some people who are like I'm coming to Raihan because I basically agree with Raihan and I kind of you know want to see him make a you know a certain kind of argument then there are other people who are like I like to get angry and enraged and I'm literally just going to read this so that I could become full of hate Um, and happy to do that too. And there are going to, you know, some kind of people fall in some third category, etc. And, you know, you just need to appreciate these are different constituencies, but how can you leave everyone a little bit better off? Yeah. Like how that person who really wants to get enraged, I guess you can, you know, kind of stir the blood a bit and, you know, kind of, you know, get them thinking and get them to believe what they already believe even more so. And the people who kind of are just curious and open, you could, hopefully show them something new, or give them a different frame to understand things they think they already understand. Um, So, you know, that to me has always been very um, fun and satisfying.
1: Uh, So I was going to ask you about uh, activism, the idea of activism, and what you were saying about sort of stirring up people's preconceptions. When you write a piece, there's potentially the way that you would just write it in, in a vacuum to your own tastes, to your own beliefs. And then there's what impact it will have on another person. And I think that in the last couple of years, some of the stuff that's happened on the web, when you look at a company like, say, Upworthy, that is really testing how people react to a headline, how people react to an image, in a couple of years, you're really going to be able to fine tune that idea of activism, the impact of what your writing could have. And I guess I'm wondering, how do you balance those two things, sort of your ideal of an article versus what would be convincing to someone or even would get clicked on by someone? And it, or, or is that something that just doesn't matter to you?
3: I wear a lot of different hats, and I think that... I do approach things differently depending on which hat that I'm wearing. So, for example, um, in terms of engaging with people who are in the wider world, you know, that is people who are non-conservatives, let's say. I mean, persuasion is not, you know, my chief mode of uh, operating. When I'm within my world, and I think that National Review has done a very good job of this, um, we really do. I mean, you know, we have these staff editorials where we. it really does matter to us to... An audience of people who are broadly like minded, but to kind of say that, hey, look, here are our shared ideals and values, and here's how to think about this. And our editor, Rich Lowry, um, is someone who I think has long been very deeply interested in the idea that. Um, you know, conservatism needs to be centered on the interests of uh, working-class Americans, and to some degree, we fail to do the work of diagnosis—that there are many people in our world um, who don't fully understand what's happening on the ground, how families have changed, how durable these changes are. Uh, so, I think that you know that activism piece is very important in that sense of just within our world. You know, how do we how do we make this case? How do we articulate a conservatism that? fits the realities of our country as it is right now now as for the kind of content that we're producing outside of those staff editorials I, I think that part of it is that actually it is a fairly big tent and there are people who have and and we actually have always you know some would say to a fault really allowed these debates to um to you know uh, to unfold um you know people have deep disagreements about you know Any number of questions: Uh, immigration policy, um, you know, how to think about political Islam, like just you know all kinds of things. Um, And I think that that's healthy for us to be the site of that kind of interconservative debate. You know, when you talk about upwardly, I mean, gosh, that is that is deeply interesting because this also relates to political communication and opinion media. Like, this is one thing that I find interesting because I think that you know people will always complain about uh, you know gosh resources and I kind of you know invoked um, you know this question in in terms of how it shapes you know kind of some of the journalism we've done or how we've kind of approached things but the thing is that in a way Political communication is a huge industry. Yeah. Uh, And that is something that is separate and distinct from what we do. And there are ways in which those lines blur. So, you know, you have many nonprofits, many think tanks uh, that are producing uh, content uh, and they're producing. And actually, you know, kind of many of these guys are trying to do investigative stuff. A lot of people who write for NAC Review have also... Written a piece for Think. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And also, when you think about you know some of the most talented left liberals, -liberals, neoliberals, you know, who are kind of in the opinion journalism world, are people who had their stints at uh, Think Progress or had their stints. It's it's you know quite striking. And so you know when you talk about the ecology where people come from, you know it is very interesting. And I think that some of these guys do think very explicitly and you know about effective political communication but i mean to some degree that's about the audiences political communication is trying to connect with this much larger universe of people who like maybe pay attention right. right before an election so i think that you know we live in that world more of that core of people who have you know this kind of civic commitment that happens to kind of line up with partisan politics so i do think that those are somewhat different things and i think that you know in a way you know, we make a mistake not having a very precise sense of who we're talking to. Uh, Michael Kelly, late editor of The Atlantic, uh, but he always talked about how, you know, when he was talking to advertisers, he was trying to tell them that, you know, the the Atlantic reader is a CEO, whereas, you know, the truth was that The Atlantic reader is someone who just likes reading books and is probably kind of a nerd. Now, you know, that's not necessarily as sexy to advertisers, uh, but, you know, it's people who are stimulated by this. And oftentimes people who are very much like the people who are kind of, you know, producing, um, you know, what we're putting out. It seems like for me to do your job,
1: you have to be a very active reader. So uh, how do you, like, how do you, how do you stay on top of all this stuff so that you can come out with something every week and not look like an asshole?
3: Well, one thing is you give up on not looking like an asshole because you definitely just will. So you just kind of accept that that's your inevitable fate. Um, But I think... Well, I used to use an RSS reader, and then the RSS reader really felt like a job. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, you know now I do use tools like uh, Longform yeah. and uh, and Pocket um, that are enormously helpful because you know, and you'll find this with a lot of people. You know, Twitter becomes something that yeah. is a very useful source for just harvesting. Oh sure. gosh, that you know, kind of that makes sense. I need to follow up on that. Um, and I do read print magazines. I certainly read the London Review of Books, um, you know, and, and kind of like just, I don't know, like even like Raritan, you know, kind of this kind of like this random stuff just because it's things that are not organically, you know, kind of coming across my field of vision. You're one of the rare people who can actually claim that you're like using an RSS reader for work. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I think that, you know, the it's also just kind of I follow my curiosity I mean I think that I'm someone who like harvests books like uh, and I'm not proud of it but like you know kind of so you know there are some books I'll read in a sustained kind of way you know kind of a little bit of fiction here and there like you I imagine you know kind of just given where we are, where we live, like we know a fair number of writers, so that creates some obligations. But um, certain people you have to at least like be (laughs) convincingly
1: right that you have read their books.
3: But a lot of books I consume electronically to just kind of pour through them and actually like to go through their footnotes, you know, and also just to kind of find other stuff like that. So that's something that is very satisfying. Um, And also just you know, some of what I do is, yeah, just kind of like reading columns that I feel like, gosh, this could go in this other direction and I kind of want to know if this person feels the same way. So, for me, some of it now is like, there's definitely like reading, but One thing I like about this job is that it's kind of an excuse for me to do the thing that I've always loved to do, which is talk to people and just like, hey, why did you make this choice? Um, You know, like, uh, or tell me, like, as someone who writes myself, I know this isn't exactly what you wanted to say. So like, what is the thing you exactly wanted to say where you needed to kind of boil it down to this thing? That's a whole separate and, and interesting question. But in a way, each generation has its own conventions of how it does opinion media. And I think that we're in a moment where... A certain style of argument that is very data-driven um, has become very pervasive and is very admired. You know, it's certainly something that I've been uh, amenable to and I think is important and valuable. But I, I, sometimes I also just think, like, Lionel Trilling didn't use charts. And he said, like, I remember, uh, you know, there's that cover story uh, a little while ago, you know, about the Ivy League and why the Ivy League is turning out just kind of miserable drones. And it just stimulated uh, enormous conversation. Was, and then there are these people, well, I don't see your proof. There's just a lot of assertions in here, Buster. Yeah. And it's like dude i mean yes but like does it resonate does it not and actually and that's a legitimate way to engage with this like actually let's look at what the data tells us and by the way the data tells us very little i mean right or it's this data not that data or yeah there's usually enough to take it a few different directions that's not to say that you know it's not important god i mean the fact that there's still you still learn new things by looking in an obvious place yeah like you know it's amazing you know we we have a we've had a conversation for decades about single parenthood but now it's also like well actually intentional pregnancies versus unplanned that's a whole other dimension that's really rich so like I love data I think it's really important I think there's so much more to be done with it but then I also think just arguments that are rooted in experience are also very valuable. And and frankly, I adhere to those conventions. I adhere to those conventions of like, well, you know, you will take me seriously because I'm kind of citing these things and and it matters to me and I think it's important. But I I, I happen to love myself. And that's kind of why I gravitate to that sometimes in my reading because like the fire hose I'm consuming is all this stuff that's like frankly very similar, oftentimes like near identical. So when I read things that are coming from like left field and from like a very distinctive way of thinking... I love it. So, yeah. Okay. I don't love it. And I want to,
1: and that, that let's, let's talk that through. So sort of a put down of a lot of this kind of writing is is sort of the hot take, right? You got a bunch of people digging this way saying higher education is worthless. So I'm going to be the guy who's like saying higher education is worth more than it's ever been. Right. Yeah. I've seen you on your feet. I feel like I could throw it like lob you a topic and go like, go over, go under, go right, over right. and you could do a really good <laughs> job. Like there's like a, a high school debate element to it where it's like either I'm getting assigned a side or I'm just going to take the side that I find the most interesting that would bring the most traffic and media is getting broader and broader. So the hot, there's more and more like if more and more people are writing about the same topic someone's got to go for the hot take and then someone's got to go for the super hot take right. and very soon we're saying things that we might not mean i guess i'm wondering like how that kind of writing intersects with more and more people writing online for free and sort of trying to carve out their own space like do you feel crowded in you know you, when you do your slate column you're like god damn it all these other people already done their columns i got to like
3: wedge in this crowded train no, but I mean, I think that actually, oh, you, you bring us this. So actually, I think that when I'm talking about these things that are a little bit different and and distinct in this way. So William Dorisovitz, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he... Damn, I, um,
1: I was hoping you knew it and then now, now <laughs> I,
3: I wouldn't know. So he is someone who had had this long experience of teaching. Now, I have to say, I actually do disagree with him very deeply on a lot of his like, core premises about the world. It is true that he was drawing on this kind of rich and long experience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, I actually don't even think he necessarily got it right. But I think that there are certain kinds of critiques, quote, unquote, of, you know, kind of what he did that just don't kind of pass muster for me. Well, and actually, that's a whole other issue. My friend, um, Jay Kang talks about this a lot. Talk uh, got his long form podcast, a very, very talented man. But, you know, he he often talks about this idea that, you know, there's a reason why on the internet, the things that flourish are. I don't necessarily want to hear what Raihan has to say about Ferguson. I want to hear what a young african-american kid living in ferguson has to say about it and and that's something that the web allows us to do that's actually really really impressive and new and now you know then what can you know what can i say so i wrote a column uh, around that time that was like very loosely like barely but you know but but to me actually felt relevant and it was just about low-rise working class communities with non-traditional families and it was like a very simple premise and the idea was just There's this built environment of American suburbia that co-evolved with a certain kind of family, a certain type of family that is actually a lot less common in many of these communities. And that itself creates all kinds of really interesting tensions. It creates public policy problems. Like, okay, why do you have these towns where, you know, they're charging everyone insane fines? And, you know, well, you know, because actually there's Something fundamentally unviable about the economics of some of these communities, in terms of like how much infrastructure they have versus how many people they have, just some stuff like that. And it's one of these things where like there is some that's known about this. There are some things that are like hard piece of evidence, but there are other things that are a bit impressionistic, that are argument driven. And you know, to some extent, you're weaving these things together. Now, for someone who is a kind of contrarian, or someone who like you know, as you've identified in my world, as a conservative you know, among people who are not conservatives, you know, there's a way in which I often feel like I'm taking facts about the world, but I'm saying, hey, actually, the way that everyone understands them is not necessarily the right way to understand them. I can assemble these facts in a way that is telling a different story that I think is more compelling. Now, there's no way to adjudicate this other than does this resonate with your experience or not? And that's a big part of what I love to do. Yeah, because I think that just so many people are like, well, those are the facts and like, ergo, I mean, it's like, wow, but you realize that your understanding of these facts is embedded in things that you're not always making explicit. There's right. certain like moral understandings or just prejudices or whatever else that you know, kind of govern how you think. And also one thing that certainly happens in public conversations is people are always trying to regulate the domain in which the conversation can take place. So they're like, well, your framework is just wrong because it's so obviously offensive, let's say right. that they're like, can't possibly right. So ergo, you must compete with me like in my narrow turf. Its like, oh, that's interesting that you've done that. I'm not going to go along with that, but thanks for trying. you know what I right. mean? like that's you know and and that's actually relates to you know the people that I'm trying to draw into the magazine and by the way, one of my ulterior motives for doing this is that I assume that a lot of the people listening to your podcast are people who are themselves writers, yeah. who care about good writing, and I just want people to know like. Come to me.
1: You want to say your email address on the air? Is that is uh, that
3: overkill? Sure. Um, <laughs> this could backfire horribly. It is my first initial, then it is my last name at the magazine where I'm based.com. You just set up a fairly high bar. Yeah, exactly. For figuring that one. Exactly. Ass. Exactly.
1: Okay. So I find your I find your defense of that kind of vigorous debate interesting, although I still find it like viscerally. Sometimes unpleasant to be around. I guess I feel like it, it, um, when we ram so many of these conflicts together, there's a certain person who's me who becomes sort of politically disinterested because I'm not really a, like I'm not an activist and I'm not a fighter. What, do you, like, do you feel like there's a role for a person who wants to read about this stuff but like outrage? Oh, yeah. You, what, what you were saying Well, Aaron, the,
3: I'm not sure we do disagree because I think part of what I'm saying is that. When you're doing this thing where you're changing the framework, what you're doing is you're getting out of the, like, immediate, like, bipolar confrontation. Right. You know what I mean? You're, like, trying to take it to a different place. But what you're doing is, like, you are saying things that where, you know, they're not simply right or wrong. Right. You know what I mean? They're things that actually hopefully people are going to be chewing over and reflecting on. If you're telling me that, like, a lot of stuff on the Internet is really tiresome. Yeah. um, Because people are lazy uh, or... You know, that's clearly, clearly true. I think me and Wesley
1: Morris, you know, for had the, course, the, yeah. we had like the exact same discussion, except instead of it being about like political writing, it was about like um, the hot take as it um, pertains to like, um, are we only going to talk about rape when there's been like a rape on Game of Thrones? Like what our, pop culture becomes this vessel for discussing serious issues. And it's like we can only talk about them through the lens of these like. Twitter events. And I thought his defense, what he said was somewhat similar to what you said. He was like, well, those people are just bad at it. Like there's a good version of this and there's a bad version of it. And what I'm
3: trying to do is the good version. So like Washu says that one of the reasons he finds sports so compelling is that professional sports is how Americans talk about commerce, race, power. It's how they talk about so many things. And if you are attuned to pro sports, You just get access to this enormous universe. Um, Absolutely. One of my favorite writers, Mina Kimes, uh, has recently left Bloomberg to go to ESPN uh, to be a columnist, which is like a big change because she was someone who wrote like long form uh, investigative stories about skullduggery in the business world. that were incredible. But
1: since there's no way to do an audio hyperlink. Check out her long-form podcast. Oh, absolutely,
3: absolutely. Um,
1: which she talks about the story you just... Uh...
3: And I can see why people find that so compelling. Now, I will say, separately, tangentially, that I do kind of worry about the brain drain to sports, just because, you know, as much as I enjoy sports myself, boy, you have this really interesting imbalance in which sports media has this, like... Megalith. It yeah. has like the Death Star that is ESPN because like that's the one thing people don't Tivo, and just the fact that they're able to. I mean, it is really interesting now. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but but um so yeah. I mean, I, I'm with Wesley in the sense that um, Wesley Morris in the sense that that's where the culture is. That's where we have shared conversations, and and I think that's okay. Now, on the other hand. I am obviously quite happy talking to the niche audience of people. like When I um, type in my phone, et cetera, it autocorrects to EITC for the earned income tax credit, which I think tells you a little <laughs> bit about the depth of my like niche interests. I mean, I think yeah. that um, clearly I'm emailing my friends about the EITC and what we think about it. Um, going back to the activist thing. This smaller audience is oftentimes of the people who are engaged with the making of policy. And it's informing how they think about these underlying issues. And that has real consequences. And that's something that I feel a great responsibility towards, you know, just that we are informing people who are making very important decisions. And also just kind of helping them navigate, well, what do you trust or how do I understand this? What's the diagnosis? And, you know, as in medicine, diagnosis is an art more than a science you said that one of your techniques
1: was to sort of take the argument out of the box, take it out of its sort of most basic constraints. And I think that's something you're very skilled at, not just in the in the sense of debate, or also, you know, when you're hosting the Vice podcast as a moderator, you'll have these guests where it's like Jeremy Scahill, and then Reggie Watts, and then Stoya, who's a, a porn act, actress. And then, you know, it's a real diversity of people. And I think that you're good at... Those shows actually have a, a through a thread. They don't feel like, wow, these are totally different than each other. How, how do you do that? Like, what are your techniques for drawing something out of its, you know, traditional box and, and bringing it somewhere where you feel like there's a, a valuable discussion to be had?
3: Among my friends, a running joke is just that I'm someone who always asks people questions. Um, I wouldn't say it's compulsive, but um, I just love to get to know the people around me. And I guess I always think of it as just respect. Like, I've done very little celebrity journalism in my life, but the thing that has always been there's this funny indignity to it you're the worst part of this person's day or you're just kind of this burden you're this obstacle to be overcome you know by this person who would desperately want to be somewhere else so I always think just being able to connect with something uh, with someone and just figuring out you know what is it that this person cares about wants to say and it's hard actually like I definitely feel with some people like they're primed for this and they have things they want to share or ways they want to be seen They have ways they're normally seen, and then they have this other way they want to be seen. There's this other missing dimension to kind of their public persona. And that's how I always think about it, just like respect. Like, you know, how can I bring out how you think things fit together and how you think your agenda or whatever's or whatever you've put, you know, kind of, you know, recently I interviewed um, Alex Ross Perry, the director of uh, Listen Up, Philip, a Mm -hmm. really, really good movie. And really, and
1: and a surprisingly... Non promo ish interview
3: you did with him, but I I was just so curious about this movie, and just for me it was like you've made this thing that is I think so rich and just so much thought went into this, and it was amazing because like right off the bat he was like telling me things that yeah people react to it in this way I can't control how people react to it, but that is definitely not what I think, and you know kind of people were making assumptions about how he thought, how he approached his characters, and it was like this is perfect, this is exactly what I want to know, yeah. and. You know, for me that's like everything like and and that's the thing about ideology too. It's like boy, I mean, I definitely encounter people who think they know what I'm about. They think they know where I'm from. (laughs) It's obviously like kind of offensive or just kind of whatever, or sometimes not, or sometimes like it's actually more generous than is appropriate Um, or any person who's like even semi-public. So just to get that feeling of like really getting to know people who think something like deeply different from you or have this really different kind of experience, what a privilege. And I think that's a privilege that, you know, you and I have as people who, you know, get to be readers for a lot of our life.
1: Absolutely. And uh, interview, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm asking you uh, questions about interviewing and I'm very sincerely like trying to like steal your techniques. So like <laughs> one of the things you said that I, uh, was that people have this, this perceived self and then almost everyone has this secret self or this, what they really want to be known for or what they really want to be asked. How do you, how do you sniff for that secrets? Like, like wh- how do you get on the trail uh,
3: uh, of what that is when, when someone comes in and you've never met them before? I do i have always believed that everyone wants to be seen, everyone wants to be recognized. There's this amazing Doris Lessing quote in which she talks about how women, young women in our culture are put on display. They're incredibly visible. And then suddenly, without warning, you enter this other phase of life where you become invisible. And she just talks about how that's actually a gift. Just, you know, the way you get this space to be yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm butchering it, but it's it's a beautiful and affecting quote. And I've thought about it so much. But a lot of what I think about is that, yeah, that's an experience for some people who are so visible and then they just cease to become visible. But then there are some people who are never visible. <laughs> you know, I always think about like why is our line of work full of men who look like gargoyles or oddballs or kind of whatever else. And it's just – you know, when I was talking at the beginning of our, our conversation just about these people who like feel like they really need to be heard. Yeah. I mean it's not a coincidence that these are a lot of people who have had to put effort into being heard and, and actually – to some extent that 's actually quite beautiful, yeah. there are people who are like, "I need to assert myself because i 'm invisible otherwise and like I think of it you know my my mother is a woman in her late sixties, and I always think like anyone who sees her on the subway, they would have certain ideas about her based on how she 's dressed or you know how tired she looks or whatever else, but it 's like you have no idea how much she knows, what she thinks, what her inner life is like, how Crazy and interesting she is. And just so, I guess for me, like I just, man, I'm just like, whenever I'm in a room like that, just like everyone, like wow, like everyone has this story, like, and we're litt- our bodies are passing each other and it's like, whoa, it's yeah. just like so heavy. Um, you know, for me, politics was a way for me to talk about human beings, how they interact with institutions and about values, like about, you know, kind of what I think are like the virtues we should be um, cultivating. And, you know, how institutions constrain and narrow our lives um, and how we can make them better. But the real root of this all is just, yeah, like like anyone, like you know, your own feelings of invisibility and then just kind of how amazing it is to feel recognized and then to know that that's true for other people too. So I think of it as just, just being attuned to recognizing what – not just wanting to say stuff, but just giving people that space to show – who they really are.
1: It's interesting that you bring up your mother as an example of someone, someone who would have uh, a preconception about that would be missing a deep uh, inner life. Your parents are Bangladeshi immigrants. Is That's that right? right? Do you feel like your experience as someone who who, who has a fairly recent immigrant heritage, are you, do you feel like your own experience, those preconceived notions have had a large effect on your life? And has that you know made that something you think about as you go about your daily life in New York City.
3: I think about this a lot in terms of black identity. Uh, this is kind of a random thing to say, but I often think about the high school I attended which had many many Asian students and very few African American students but where where did you I went up? to Stuyvesant high school? Stuyvesant, okay. And um you know I sometimes think about the ways in which because the black experience is such a central part of American history and culture the weight of black identity for those who are let's say black in majority non-black environments whereas for me i think that a lot of it's happenstance a lot of it's literally just when i happen to have been born there wasn't a super rigid firm script for people like me and so i think that gave me a fair bit of freedom there were scripts around class there are many other things but also like you know i didn't have a brooklyn accent i mean i'm from brooklyn but and you know it, It's not that I'm proud of that or not proud of that, but it just happened to be you you were treated differently because of it. And I became very attuned to this early, and I think I became very attuned to how unfair it was early, but also just about how you navigate this world. And, you know, fairness is one way of understanding the world, but another way to understand is just, yeah, these are constraints that are real and you navigate them, and you have some agency. You don't have, as, and different people have more, and others have less. And just also seeing my parents and the constraints they operated under, and you know, that being very present for me. So yeah, I mean, I think that that drew me to thinking a lot about just American history. How did we wind up here? <laughs> like, you know, kind of like, who, you know, who are these people? And just trying to form a community out of these people with these really different. Another thing I sometimes think is that, you know, I do think a lot about immigration. I write a lot about it. I probably write about about it more than I ought to, just because I'm sure people get bored by it. But there are all of these narratives like, you know, kind of either all immigrants are saints or they're all criminals and hoodlums. I mean, it's just it's very weird the way we talk about this, like large class of people. And my views on immigration are very different from, you know, most of the people that I know here in New York, different from my co-ethnics, let's say. There are very few Bangladeshi Americans, well, period, very few people of Bangladeshi origin who become citizens of the United States. But I did see that 96% of Bangladeshi Americans voted for Barack Obama, which I thought was you know pretty impressive. So yeah, I mean, this is definitely something I, I think a lot about. But I actually, I think that it probably is true that the way other people see me through like a kind of racial script yeah. has informed their thinking. I haven't felt that personally burdened by it. And I'm very cognizant. Uh, of not being as burdened by it as uh, people from you know many other backgrounds, where the associations that people have with a certain group identity, even just thinking about like uh, you know the uh, the proverbial like you know douchebag, you know what I mean? Like you know that's another thing that kind of weirdly carries with it a lot of weight, and when you kind of go into certain settings, so that hasn't felt like you know like something that has been that oppressive to me. It's felt more like an opportunity. You know, I, I, a lot of people you know of my background, you know, there's this this running thing about people asking you, so where are you from? No, where are you really from? And I think that, you know, this whole idea that that's actually like a microaggression, it's really annoying. And I actually, I don't dismiss that. I think that there are contexts in which that can be pretty obnoxious. But I've always thought of that as, well, I will tell you where I'm from. I'm from Brooklyn. I th- But my parents are from, a- I will like preemptively answer the question. Yeah. And I think you want to know something about me or like where I'm coming from or like what my deal is. And if that's it, like, I'm actually happy to talk about it. But I also want to know about you because, like, I'm not going to assume that you're a blank. Like, I'm going to assume that you are embedded in something like I'm going to assume that, oh, you're white and uh, you went to Haverford. But, oh, you're from Erie, Pennsylvania. And, oh, you grew up in a trailer park. And, oh, and like you're you feel pretty alienated from a lot of the people you grew up around, like that's really interesting. And I want to know about that. So in a way, like we all have an ethnicity and I just kind of feel like, so for me, it's like an opportunity to like give people a safe space to have a conversation about like who they think they are.
1: And I I guess I'm wondering that sort of curiosity that you have for other people, how do you do that transaction in a way that's non-threatening to people like you have a, a real ease with coming back on a statement as you said that is sort of offensive in its basic origin and turning it into a
3: discussion uh, most of the time I think it's just genuine curiosity and and to some degree actually there are certain people who are in certain ultra cultural environments who know not to ask that question yeah and in a way that's like I almost think that's kind of worse because like if you want to know but so you grew up in Berkeley I grew up in a I br- grew up in Brooklyn yeah you know, a kind of similar community in some ways what part of Brooklyn did you up grow up in, in Borough Park and that I grew up in Kensington. Borough Park, which is now a very heavily Hasidic neighborhood, was at the time, but is more so now. And Kensington, which is, you know, pretty mixed, um, you know, at the time, kind of... You've got to be like dynamite on Lower directions. middle class, middle class. I know my way around decently. But... Um, so I guess the way that I always think of it is that I grew up in a culture where I grew up in an environment where everyone was ethnic. Yeah. And, you know, all of the white people I knew were Jewish, pretty much. I mean, not quite, but close to it. Or they were kind of, you know, quote unquote, white ethnics who were people who definitely had a real sense of place or had a sense of grievance or kind of, you know, whatever else. And, you know, I grew up all, among a lot of immigrants and children of immigrants. And I sometimes think about this because In a weird way, I think that my failures of empathy, and like everyone I have them, sometimes in a weird way are for people who are like me. Uh, Or in some sense, like me, or one would understand them to be like me, because let's say it's someone who's like an uh, East Asian person who grew up in like an all white environment and kind of, you know, feels very marked um, and very visible for that reason, not in a good way. Whereas I think that, you know, because of where I grew up, I actually weirdly was like, hey, you guys are all prejudiced against these white Christian guys, you know, or something like that. So in a funny way, that was actually a way for me to connect very closely with American identity, because I felt... I knew that they were racist. I encountered racism. But it was kind of like, what are you going to do? Throw us out? Yeah. You know, like, we're heavily armed and aggressive and ornery. I mean, you get it. it's like, you know, like, actually, of course, we have a right to be here. I mean, it's hard to explain, but it was like a different kind of attitude uh, that maybe led me to respect or be more comfortable with conservative constituencies, even before I thought of myself as a conservative, but in a way that I try to think about people who are, who are kind of like in some sense like me, but under different circumstances and trying to understand where they come from. Uh, and I think that that actually is a real struggle for conservatives more broadly. It's really striking because when you look at Asian Americans voted overwhelmingly for um, President Obama's reelection, but it's striking because actually it seems that religion has a lot to do with it. If you're an Asian American Christian, you're more likely to identify with a political right than if you're, let's say, a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist. And that's really interesting to me, the idea of like this anxiety being not just about race, but also about this kind of religious culture.
1: It's interesting. We were talking about like college students and like whether they're ever going to get print magazines. I'm coming down on the no on that <laughs> one. But it's also, print magazines are just one of many issues where if you, if you believe that people who are, say, 18 to 22 now are the future of America which I think if you're like running a political party, that's kind of something you got to be keeping your eye on. There's all of these things that print magazines, marijuana legalization, there are these issues that there's no anti-marijuana base in the 18 to 22 year old. There are these issues that are dying out with the, with people. It's, it's strange even to be having a debate about some of these issues as someone who's like planning to like live like 40 more years. I'm like, Do we have to have this like medical like medical marijuana debate? It's it's over. All we have to do is wait till all these people like get 10 years older. Is that a false idea? I think you're
3: wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, marijuana is an issue I've thought about a lot I mean the regulation of marijuana specifically Oregon for example has a uh, proposition on the ballot um, yep. you know this fall now again partly it could be the demographics of the electorate in a midterm but it's quite possible it's going to lose uh, and if it wins it is going to put in place a regime that is going to cause a lot of problems for Washington state and for you know, other neighboring states potentially so we could agree at this level but then where the rubber meets the road I mean right. I think there are a lot of interesting tricky questions and also like I think that in terms of the public opinion of younger people there are some issues where I think that you know, kind of, you know, these debates have solidly changed. There are others where we are going to see this stuff fluctuate. I mean, there is this uh, poll from the Harvard Institute of Politics, and it was really fascinating because the disapproval for the president uh, is quite high. A majority of these millennial voters want a Republican-led Congress. You know, I was surprised uh, by a fair bit of this, and. Uh, you know, there's a way in which actually people who are substantially younger than us are growing up with a different set of narratives about how the world works and uh, you know, perhaps about overreach and, yep. and these kinds of things. And I do think that that's something that keeps me up at night. I mean, something that I'm nervous about. Are we doing a good enough job, we at National Review, the people in my world more broadly, of connecting to this? And that goes back to diagnosis. Like, to what extent do we even understand this world? Because one challenge that people on the right face, conservatives and Republicans face, is that the people within these constituencies are more likely to be in intact families, let's say. They're more likely to be in communities that are defined by a high level of homogeneity, et cetera. So in a way, they don't always appreciate how much the country has changed. Mm-hmm. But then it is also true that there are many younger people for whom conservative ideas do resonate. But there has to be a process of translation and actually kind of really understanding. You know, They might be open to you, but you have to be relevant to their lives. So I don't see a lot of these debates as settled. I do think the debates are going to be different. And I think that's really important. Like, yeah, like where. So so I agree with you in that sense. Marijuana, who knows? But I agree that the terrain is changing. It's already changing in ways that we don't fully appreciate because of like the, the age thing. And um, and I think that that's definitely something I, I want to cover. And if you're out there and you <laughs> think about this stuff, uh, I want you to pitch me.
1: I possibly just said something that was totally wrong, right, about medical marijuana costumes, And I don't have to really worry about anyone cashing that check because it's like 112 <laughs> minutes into a podcast but you're on slate every week um, with a new column and you're on various other outlets um, speaking your mind in, in real time in a way I was I was just watching this this weekend uh, the the documentary era Morris did on Donald Rumsfeld where he never really says you're lying but he'll occasionally just like play a clip where he's like no one thought Osama bin Laden worked with Saddam Hussein and it's just like show a clip like We're at a unique historical period for people to be visibly wrong forever. Do you ever consider like all of these like I think about like say the last month in columns. You had a column about Amazon being a force for good in the market and not being a monopoly. Um, You're
3: making like calls in, in real time. How do you deal with being wrong? My favorite example of this is that uh, Ross Douthit, who was my co-author in a book we wrote in 2008 and is also one of my closest friends, we were on a radio program in which we both talked up. You know, we had assumed, oh, this person is probably going to be John McCain's running mate in 2008, but the person who would be really awesome would be Sarah Palin. So we actually got (laughs) out ahead of that. We uh, definitely talked her up very enthusiastically. I don't think that turned out brilliantly. (laughs) Um, Not everyone is going to share this. Attitude, and uh, but I'll I'll just tell you the truth, uh, which is what I always strive to do. I think of this as an ongoing conversation. I think of these calls as contingent, and I have I think been pretty good about revising the calls that I make on these things, and 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 also. I regret not even so much the calls that I made, but some of the ways that I thought about issues when I was younger. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this since I was 21. You're like the first
1: generation where everything you've ever written will be recallable.
3: Yeah, like it was all on the web. Actually, some of these places have really crappy web archives. Yeah, I was going so to say yeah, that your, your, <laughs> but, <laughs> your only hope
1: is the architecture of National Review's site.
3: And and actually, And that actually is very humbling because you think, well, if you had that frame of mind at that time, if that's how you were arguing then – you know, how have you changed? And and I guess I don't know if I succeed, but I think very hard about growing and trying to do different things. I mean, taking this role as executive editor is to some degree about I want to carve out some space to do some longer writing of my own. But I also really want to dedicate myself to cultivating um, other writers. I mean, it's just important to me. And I think that, um, you know, I've always thought of myself as a better idea guy than a writer. I mean, I think I'm, I'm a solid writer. I'm good at it. You know, I could be better. I hope to get better. But I just love ideas. I love the conversation. I don't mind being proven wrong. I kind of feel like there's certain conversations that happen in the right spirit where it's kind of like, hey, like, we have a pretty good sense of what our priors are, rather than like the shadow boxing without acknowledging what the priors are. I mean, I kind of feel like it's useful to kind of like, okay, know where we're coming from. Yeah, and then kind of, yeah, exactly. And then kind of go from there. Yeah. I think that's just more constructive. And I just feel very lucky to get to take part in that. And I think that in a way, when we talk about the web, like, and including the annoying things about the web and the hot takes and what have you, I mean, it is pretty amazing how inclusive it is. Like, it's funny, when Andrew Sullivan started blogging, he was the one political blogger. So, When any news event happened, it was like, we're going to go to him. Whereas now we're saturated with kind of instant reaction, which is actually why I think when you talked about the age of the column, it's kind of why I think we're reentering the age of the column, because now something that feels a little substantial, something that's like, you know, 1,500, 2,000 words that is genuinely analytical... And it's kind of like let's say reframing something. I think that that actually is quite a relief because there's such a fire hose of like instant reaction, and so just that added degree of thoughtfulness is actually very attractive. Now, how long that'll be the case, you know, who knows? But it's, I do it's think something that we, it's we a talk about it
1: with regards to long form, people will be like, "So what's so good about all these long articles?" It's like, well, <laughs> there's nothing good about them. There's something bad about most three hundred word article. There's it, it's not that there's anything implicitly good about a long article. It's that when you filter the internet at say that 1500 word mark no one puts in enough work to write like total 1500 word crap in my experience it just it it ups (laughs) the debate purely by the effort just by showing up you've proven something
3: yeah i think there's something to that i mean i have to say i've written so many columns at this point in my life it's it's kind of crazy but actually the nice thing with slate is that i write longer columns for them and it's nice and i i kind of feel like uh it's nice to get that pushback and because I, i have a real tendency in fact i they can't they haven't fully beaten it out of me but i have a real tendency to like not always want to be completely explicit partly because i don't want to close your mind like i want you to be kind of open to this so let, let me not necessarily completely hammer down exactly where you know kind of this is coming from but i think that it's kind of can be constructed because to some degree I, I kind of want to feel like i'm actually not being complete right like i wrote this piece on ok cupid and dating and just about and race and dating and it was funny because all these people were like it's not necessarily racist what if you want to marry someone of your religion i was like Dude, that definitely occurred to me. (laughs) And there's a reason I didn't bring it up because it's your job to bring it up. I kind of I want you to talk it out. So anyway, I think that being complete, just complete enough, but not so complete that you're pretending to foreclose conversation and you're not pretending that this is definitively the last word on the subject. I'm not surprised to say that you're more of an you
1: say more of an ideas guy than a writing guy. Not because I think there's any deficiency in your writing, but because I like when I watch you live on the Vice podcast. I can see that you take a certain pleasure in sort of coming off the cuff, like letting ideas come out in real time, and, and really like there's a certain improvisational thrill to it that, that is evident in the way that you interview. And I was watching that. This is, of course, my interviewing problem. All I can talk about is like the two things that happened to me in the last... Piece. I was watching the, <laughs> the Errol Morris with Donald Rumsfeld. And you can see, because he doesn't cut in a lot of those pieces, a lot of his technique is wait, 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 and then just come right back at it. And he leaves the the timing in. So I was... When I... Um, when, when you had Errol Morris on, I was like, oh man, he's uh, he has met his match. Yeah. And I thought you did quite well. So I'm intrigued as like, what's going on in your mind when you're trying to sort of work in real time like that? Are you thinking of like the next question? I noticed, I, I, I bring this up because um, you're this is, uh, I think, episode number about 115. And you're my first guest who's taken notes during the interview. And I'm fascinated by what you've written down on that piece of paper.
3: Well... Here I've just written down a couple of names uh, and also just the word persuasion and then uh, in parentheses the words within and then without. So (laughs) these are uh, just, I think sometimes that helps me organize my thoughts a bit. And also I'm kind of obsessed. I've never really kept a diary in any rigorous kind of way, but I am obsessed with like when you've had a day and you're like taking notes throughout the day and then look at it at the end of the day and how powerful that is. Like what a relief it is to kind of, And I think it's something that can make you feel present. But I generally don't do that with the interviews. It depends on who it is. I mean, there's some people... Molly Crabapple is someone I interviewed, and it just... We are different people. We have different modes of interaction. But it was such a pleasure to hear her unfold these different ideas, to unspool these different ideas, I should say. With some other people... Sometimes I feel like they need to be drawn out and that kind of gives makes me feel a little bit more like attentive to them and just kind of like I want to like make them feel safe. So it definitely varies from person to person. But yeah. with but with the idea thing, I mean, I definitely think that I am fundamentally an improviser to a fault. And if anything, like it, I really strive to kind of be a little more disciplined about how I do my work. The other idea thing, though, is like. I'm not sure how many of your readers follow this ideological stuff, but there are a number of conservatives, uh, you know, myself included, who've been thinking for many years now about how to change the conservative conversation, how to change how conservatives think about certain policy issues, etc. You know, certainly I've been engaged with my writing, but a lot of that's been corralling people, talking to people, getting people who don't know each other to talk to each other, uh, and that is also stuff that I love. And so for me, you know, a magazine was a way of connecting people. Throughout the country, and it still is at its best with this conversation and inviting them to take part in it. There is the other dimension. And as someone who commissions, there is this insecurity that I find that that is really bad for magazine journalism. And I think and I think something that actually I kind of secretly hope that we can capitalize on this. But there's a laziness of magazine editors where they only want to commission things from people who are proven yeah. known quantities. They become so paralyzed by the prestige of their brand that they're like, well, it's violating the traditions of fancy magazine number six so we can't do that and then you're like wow this is hilarious so you're literally commissioning things from someone who's written for seven other places that are like pretty damn similar to you you're that risk averse and i think that you know the nice thing about us is that's the great thing about being on the fringes like we have our own institutional weight we have our own traditions we take them seriously but what i'm hoping is that man like we can find people um you know, diamonds in the rough. Like we don't have to worry about that quite as much. Uh, we want to honor those traditions, but we are both willing to and have to put in that work yeah. to find people who aren't great yet, but who are going to become great. As opposed to just having, to be like, oh my God, I know everything this guy's going to say. Like, I know exactly the kind of earnest, you know, kind of like liberal thing I'm going to hear from this person or whatever else. And it's like. You know that's enervating.
1: <laughs> I feel like it's a funny phenomenon in what you described, where I've I've heard from I won't say names of magazines, but I've heard from magazines where they'll say like, "Oh, well, that's not a that's not an online piece. That's like a that's a magazine piece." And it's like, well, you're saying that's good though, right? And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's good. It's like. Are you saying that you're intentionally making the website bad?
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah, Um, that's a whole other kind of dish.
1: You said you described like sort of an idealized version of the magazine as brand kind of, this is our brand. And um, the big development, I would say of the last few years that I've seen is sort of the emergence of the writer brand where writers are their own brand or, you know, got to get your own audience, get out on Twitter. So, I would describe you as someone who has a very successful brand, like a lot of people from disparate backgrounds know about you and know about your writing. You're someone who, who I think resonates to a, to a sort of a, a wider audience than, than you have to. What's the future of the uh, the Rehan Salam brand? like? And, and how do you regard that in terms of your career and, and the choices you make?
3: I think that if I were deliberate about it, it would look pretty different, just uh, in the sense that I think that I, I have this like unenviable distinction of being someone, a lot of the people who are familiar with the Raihan brand hate the Raihan brand. Because <laughs> like, I, yeah, it's funny. Like I don't think of myself as that much of a brand. Like I think of myself as a facilitator. There are a lot of these longer essays I really want to write. There are a lot of, kind of more substantial pieces of writing I really want to do, and I struggle with that just because... I've been writing these columns for so long. It's been the kind of way I think. And so, like, weirdly going over 2,000 words actually naturally is easy. Like, you're just kind of typing. But to kind of think ahead, like, gosh, you know, I still feel uh, a little intimidated by it in a funny way. You know, my dream would be to have a setup where, you know, let's say I am able to contribute to an institution I really believe in. You know, National Review is a place where I really support the mission but then sometimes i joke with friends like i would be amazing to be like a game show host and then to also write really long weighty essays about you know how we think about the planet just because i think that you know there are these two parts of my brain like where i just love engaging with people and i love performance but then also i do feel like man sometimes i think i need to unpack and you know there's so much that's implicit so much that's unstated in some of my writing to a point that i think can be frustrating and I just kind of think I'd really like to give it some space and um, give it the time that it needs.
1: Well, I wish you success in both the uh, game show hosting and (laughs) uh, long-form essay writing uh, traditions. That sounds like a properly diversified career too. Those <laughs> both those aren't both going to go out of business at the same time. So, uh, thank you very much for coming in, uh, Raihan Salam. Um, we'll have all the stuff in the show notes. Tell me, tell me the name of your book. Uh, grand new party. Grand new party is the book. There's Co-authors a slate column every week, and I assume you're going to be doing some stuff at National Review. Absolutely. Um, lo- you know, actually a great way to follow someone like. Uh, Rayhan, it's in the long form app where you could follow him and you'd be getting all the pieces he did on slate national review. You've written, you, you're like a perfect poster boy for um, following a writer across domain. So um, thank you again for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll be back next week. And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Rayhan Salam for coming in though. He lives in the neighborhood. So it really was not so hard for him. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Rachel Mabe. Thanks to our sponsors, Bonobos, Tiny Letter from MailChimp, and Cards Against Humanity's 10 Days or Whatever of Kwanzaa. That was at holidaybullshit.com. You should go there and check it out. We'll be back here next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone